So my name is Jordan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance, and I want to talk to you guys today about a scripture that talks about struggle. It talks about wrestling. Specifically, it talks about wrestling with God. It comes to us in Genesis 32, um, and it'll be on the screens to my sides. It says, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Now, what is this text about? It's about wrestling, and specifically wrestling with God. Now, there's a few reasons why we can read something like this and it not make the most sense to us, or that it wouldn't necessarily jump right off the page and how we can apply it to our life. And I think one of the first reasons, if we're just going to state the obvious, is that stuff like this doesn't happen to anybody, right? Um, if you were to say, come into church today, say, hey, you know, my morning was crazy. I'm a, I was a little late because on my way to church, when I was walking past Popeye's, God threw me in the, in the dope fiend and he was trying to choke me out and I barely got away and made it to church. Uh, if that was your story, I would call 911 to get you choked up out of here. Uh, <laughs> Because that type of story doesn't necessarily happen too often. The second reason, and far more important than the first, why we would struggle to understand how this could apply to our life is, I just don't think we understand conflict. I don't think we understand what conflict can do and actually does do in our relationships. How if you don't have conflict, if you haven't worked through conflict, you don't have a real relationship. So many people think that a great relationship is one in which there is no conflict, but the truth of the matter is all great relationships are not the ones where there was no conflict, but rather people wrestled together. They worked their way through conflict. Now, my wife and I were in a long-distance relationship, and some people say they don't work, but I'm living proof that they do, so you might want to broaden your Tinder profile out a couple hundred miles. (laughs) 200 miles is a limit. That's, That's what I would stick with. Um, But she was living in D.C. and I was living in New York. And man, we were in that straight up puppy love phase, y'all. We would go to bed every single night, like at three in the morning, because we were on the phone like, no, you hang up first. No, 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 you hang up first. If I were to say that now, I'd be like, no, you, hello, hello. But we were straight up puppy love, and um, we always wanted to see each other. And the way my bank account is set up, I don't have that Amtrak money, right? 
But I am a platinum member of that boat bus, though, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Put some respect on that. Uh, and we would see each other most weekends, uh, thank God for the, that boat bus. And most of the trips were pretty unremarkable. I would sleep my way to D.C. or back up to New York. But I remember one trip in particular. We stopped in the Jersey Turnpike, and I got off, and we just had the whole weekend together, and I was just, I was singing Lauryn Hill, Nothing Even Matters in my mind. I was like, yo, I was wide open. I was caught up. And I had my head down, I was texting with her, just smiling. And when I picked up my head, I was in the woman's bathroom. An elderly woman was walking out and she was not amused at all. Uh, and I was terrified, I ran out, not as terrified as she was, and I ran out of the bathroom. And I was that caught up that I didn't even know where I was walking. Now, if you would have asked me in that moment, how close are you to Jessica? I would have said, we are very close. I'm so close to her that I can't even pay attention to what bathroom I walk into. Seven years later, I see how immature that was. Most of my life up to that point with her was not spent in deep connection with her. It was all surface level, but real, very surface level interaction, and it felt pretty good. Most of us, when we think about what makes a real relationship, we think that a really solid relationship and a really solid connection is built on compatibility, and we like the same things, shared interests, experiences, and mutually warm feelings. Ask anybody who's been together for a little bit, and they'll tell you, that might get you in the door, but it absolutely is not going to create the type of intimacy and connection that's required to take you the long haul. Seven years later, we didn't been through some stuff. We've walked together, we've wrestled against each other, and on the other side of all of those conflicts is the connection. On the other side of conflicts with anyone, not just in a romantic relationship, on the other side of conflict is the connection. So the scripture that's telling us today that Jacob wrestled with God is not strange at all because all relationships, all real relationships require that you walk through conflict. And on the other side of that conflict is a real relationship, is a real connection. Years ago, when we were first starting our community groups, we would hand out uh, a, a document for community groups to read on how people actually come together. How do people actually become close? It's not based on uh, how compatible they are or how much they like each other. Uh, psychiatrist Scott Peck, he talks about it in these ways. He says the, the stages of connection uh, start like this. It starts first off with pseudo-connection. Pseudo-connection is a fancy way of saying a false connection or a fake connection. Now, with pseudo-connection, when people meet each other, all they're worried about is conflict avoidance. So they put up barriers, they put on their fake self, and they interact with each other, all just to keep the smiles in the room. It's why you can date someone for six months and not know the real them. They weren't necessarily lying, but they were keeping things back from themselves so as to not cause a lack of harmony or a lack of good vibes going on. When people that you meet at church or in your community group, the first several interactions or maybe the first several months of interactions are all in this pseudo-connection stage. It's all people trying to behave so as not to cause chaos. But chaos eventually happens. And the second stage in connection, uh, Dr. Peck says, is actually this thing called chaos. It sounds bad, but it's quite necessary. Chaos is essentially when people stop fronting. Now, people will just be real and say who they actually are. 
People don't put on the fake um, smiles. They don't all agree. And when chaos happens, people actually start to find out that there are disagreements going on. Not everybody sees life the same way. Usually in chaos, the first thing that happens is now there's a power struggle. Everybody's trying to win everybody over to their argument. And what normally feels like the uh, destruction of the group is actually the construction of the group. What feels like it's tearing you apart is actually putting you together. Chaos is necessary because it's a necessary step because when you're allowing yourself to be real, when you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable, when you're allowing yourself to stop fronting, this is when you start to present the real you to the other real person and vice versa. Now, a lot of times in, with people in their relationship with God, they believe that in order for them to have a good relationship with God, it should just all feel absolutely amazing. There should never be a point in my life when, I, when it feels like me and God are on different planets like the way that I see the world and the way that God sees the world in Scripture just don't line up. So what do we do with this? Normally, what we try to do is we try to recreate God in our own image. God is us, just a little bit nicer. He just so happens to love all the things I love. He just so happens to value all the things I value. And what happens in this stage, if you're careful, you won't allow, um, you won't allow God to be God and you to not be God. The third stage is emptiness, and emptiness is when people do exactly what this word suggests. They empty all of the expectations they have of the other person. So first, they are front and second, they are um, kind of frustrated that the other person, or in this case, God, is not like you want God to be. And then finally, we hit the stage of emptiness. Emptiness is the bridge between chaos and connection. It's when we say, you know what, I'm finally going to listen to you for what you're actually saying. I'm finally going to approach you just to be you. I'm not going to import and put on your shoulders all of the expectations of the way that I wanted you to be. A lot of people are, are stuck in a perpetual state of immaturity in their relationship with God because they haven't first emptied their expectations of how God should behave. As a result, we're blocked from hearing and communing and connecting with God because we haven't let go of the ideals or the preconceived notions of what God should be like. The last stage is true connection. True connection is when we have worked through the chaos, worked through the emptiness, and now we can come to someone and receive them as they are, and they can receive us as we are. But true connection doesn't happen before the chaos and the emptiness. Wrestling struggling with someone, is not out of the norm. It's not a detour to connection. It is the path to connection. You cannot have any relationship with any person in a real way and not have difficult, difficult conversations, disagreements, arguments, and struggle. So when we see this text in Genesis, as we're continuing our Genesis stories series, um, what, I, what I want us to do is to feel a permission to enter into this story, this narrative, and question ourselves, maybe God is inviting me into something that might not be the way that I normally would have approached him. It might happen through wrestling with God. So this is what wrestling with God looks like, as we'll see in the scripture. Here's what we see about it. Wrestling with God is personal. It's invited by him. It's always a struggle, and we win by losing. Wrestling with God is personal. It is um, invited. God invites us to wrestle. It's a struggle, and we win by losing. 
So first, wrestling is personal. Uh, let's look at the first few verses of this account. It says in uh, Genesis 32:22, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent, them o- he sent over all his possessions. Verse 24 is where we're landing on this. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Before we dig too much into this first point about it being personal, I want to zoom back a little bit and just talk about how the Bible was constructed. The first several books of the Bible are uh, called historical books. Now, historical books are concerned with telling us what happened in ancient times. They're not necessarily giving a commentary on whether or not things should have happened that way. They're simply telling us what is. Last month, we talked about a passage of scripture where a woman was raped, and in retaliation, her brothers killed every man in the entire village. When the scripture gave us that passage, it's not saying rape and murder are good. It's simply saying this is what happened. Very early on in this passage of scripture, we see something um, which our modern eyes uh, might squint at, and it's that Jacob had two wives. He was polygamous. This is not a commentary that God condones, blesses, desires polygamy. This is simply saying Jacob had two wives. Y'all with me? All right, so Jacob sends everything and everyone away, and it says he was left alone. And who we later to find out is God, uh, and he wrestled with him until daybreak. First thing we see is that wrestling with God is personal. And what's being told to us here is that if you meet God in reality, you're not going to meet God at a seminar. You're not going to meet God over afternoon tea. You're going to meet God as a wrestler. Wrestling is an incredibly one-on-one event. Nobody who's wrestling starts to think about their summer vacation plans. It takes all of your focus and it puts them and it locks them dead on the person with whom you are wrestling. Now, anybody who's lived through some stuff in life knows that there are some things that you're going to have to face alone. Not everybody can go with you on everything, some highs and some lows. The first thing we see in this account that is that uh, God comes to him and he wrestles with him, and it's personal. It's one-on-one. You know, growing up, I would have told you that I had a relationship with Jesus, uh, but it was never really personal. What I did have was my parents who made me go to church every Sunday. So every single Sunday, especially on second Sunday, I was part of the youth usher board at Shiloh Baptist Church. I would put on my little pin and my black suit, my penny loafers, and I would uh, usher the aisles. When I got to college, I realized I didn't have to go to church anymore, and I walked away. I would have said then I was walking away from Jesus, but in reality, I was walking away from my parents' Jesus, because I never had him in the first place. You could be around a lot of Christian-y stuff. You could be around God. You could be around people with a relationship with God, but it doesn't mean it's personal yet. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I went to Zion National Park in Utah to get away, and uh, we had a phenomenal time. And I was obsessed with this wooden stove that was there to uh, heat up the little tent we were in. And um, I put some of my clothes, I were kind of near the stove. And when I got back to New York, um, one of my hoodies smelled up like straight up smoke. And I was like, man, it didn't even, uh, it wasn't like that close to the fire. I think a lot of us in our life, we have this aroma because we've been around smoke, but we never touched the fire. Had we touched the fire, it would not have looked the same at all. 
My entire upbringing from age zero to 21, I was around a whole bunch of Christian stuff, but it wasn't personal yet. One of the reasons we challenge people to do things like the next step in the baptism class and all these different things is because we want you to make it personal. We don't want you living off of mama and grandmama's faith or someone else's faith, but we, we want it to be personal. Uh, but it's not just for the people who are new to Christianity for the first time. Uh, mature Christians have several ways of making their walk with God very impersonal, running away from God, and instead of engaging with God and wrestling with him, we have our tactics to avoid God. There's a scripture in Exodus where God invites all of the people to come to the mountain so that God can speak to them directly. The people look towards the mountain, see the fire, see the thunder, see the lightning. You don't see thunder. You see the lightning. You hear the thunder. And they say, you know what, Moses? Ah, we're good. How about you go for us and tell us what God says? Uh, that passage of scripture shows us a piece of the human condition we would prefer for it to not be personal because to actually have a real interaction with the real God would be kind of fearful. There's a scripture in Hebrews that said it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All throughout scripture, uh, whenever you see God appear to someone, the first thing that they experience is fear. So angels say, fear not. There's a piece of all of us that would rather avoid God than, than wrestle with him personally. A couple of years ago when Renaissance first started, uh, there was a guy who came to the church, and I'll never forget this one interaction. I have a lot of conversations with people in the hallway, and after church, he says, hey, man, I need to talk to you for a second. I was like, yeah, definitely. What's up, bro? He was like, man, hey, what does a church believe about consubstantiation versus transubstantiation? I was like, bro, I got a C in church history. I don't even know what that means. I was like, if you want... I'll Google it. As a matter of fact, which one do you believe? <laughs> Same here. That's the one I'm with. Don't, if, you're, if you struggle with sleep, before you take some Benadryl, Google this, and then you'll, it'll knock you right out. It'll put you to sleep. <laughs> this is basically an ancient old theory about an argument about communion. Um, now, in his mind, it was a serious question. For whatever reason, he decided that that was a conversation topic of the day. I later found out in his life that he was going through a pretty messy divorce based on stuff that he was doing. His entire life, he had been this pristine Christian boy. He gets married, and he's living at such a substandard level than he thought he could ever uh, live. And as a result, his marriage is crashing down. And he was let to hold, left to hold its wreckage in his own palms. What would have been personal is to say, Jordan, I don't know how God could ever forgive someone like me. What would have been personal is to say, I have lived so far beneath uh, what I thought I was, I don't know the way forward. But instead, he asked me about consubstantiation and transubstantiation. Why is that? Because it's much easier to deflect your attention with deep theological issues than it is to say, I don't know how I'm going to forgive myself. I don't know if God accepts me. One of the things that I hope you leave here today is, is not with resolution, I hope I open the box of a million questions in your life, and it determines you to wrestle, not to flee. Another way that I've seen Christians really deflect a personal wrestling with God is that their attention is always on someone else. It's always on what they're not doing. It's always on how they disappointed. It's always on how they're not living up to this. It's always on everyone else. Now, to a certain extent, it is necessary to talk about and to, for things to be brought to light. Um, everyone needs accountability. Uh, but I don't think it's actually genuine. If it was that genuine, you would tell it to, some, you would tell it to their face. 
It's much easier to look at someone else than it is to look in the mirror. It's much easier to look at someone else and see all the ways that they're messing up and to ignore what looks back at us in the mirror every single day. Most of us feel this pressure and this temptation to not make it personal, but God comes to us and he wants to deal with us personally. The second thing about wrestling with God is not only is it personal, but it is invited. God himself is the one who went after Jacob. It's not the other way around. It's okay to wrestle with God, and we see this in verses 24 through 26. It says, So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now, here's a really interesting part about this scripture. It says that the, the angel or God in this, in this passage wrestled with Jacob all night long, and then in the morning, he just touched his thigh, and he was permanently disabled for the rest of his life. What does that mean? God could have come to Jacob, and three seconds into it, he could have, he could have ended the fight, but he didn't. Why is that? Because he wanted to wrestle. He wanted the experience for Jacob. He wanted to engage in this with him. One of the things that keeps us locked into spiritual immaturity is feeling like we are unable to wrestle with God. So the deep questions you have about your faith, you would leave before you would actually stay and wrestle. God invites us to wrestle. One of the things that I found in my own life, and I, and I know it to be true, and I hope you find this to be true in your own life, is this, is this right here. God can handle the full extent of your anger, your disappointment, your confusion, your joy, your happiness, whatever it is. As Jacob wrestled with God all night long, he was given God the full extent of his energy and of his weight, and God could handle it. A lot of us don't think that God can handle it, so instead of praying through our disappointments, we walk away from prayer. We stop praying. God invites us to wrestle. God wants us to wrestle, not to run away. The third thing we see about um, what it looks like to wrestle with God is that, man, it's, it's a struggle. The old saints were saying, nobody told me the road would be easy. If I could sing, I would have sang that just right there. <laughs> but I know he didn't bring me this far to leave me. To walk with God is it's a struggle. There's an old book by C.S. Lewis when he talks about, uh, there's a quote and says, man, safe? Is God safe? No, but he is good. Amen. To walk with God is to not experience bliss and freedom from all distraction and worry and anxiety and pain. It's to walk with God and to struggle, not just with him, but sometimes against him. Uh, two of the ways that we find ourselves struggling is for control. Um, and also, may, may, most of the time, we would struggle to trust God's wisdom, God's timing. Um, and we want control. Who in here doesn't want control? It would be amazing if I can control my own life. It would feel amazing, at least. And to not have control is... A struggle. We see this in the text uh, as they were struggling. It says, so Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that it was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me, unless you bless me. Uh, keep that verse up for a second. Here's the crazy thing about that passage. It started with Jacob trying to overpower God. And it ended with Jacob struggling just to hold on. 
in a lot of struggles that you have in your life, it might start with you trying to control God and how your life turns out, but it might just end up in you struggling just to hold on. Mother's Day is a perfect example of that. Uh, for so many people who do not have the version of Mother's Day that you wish you did have, maybe uh, we can list the long list of all of the ways that it is so incredibly painful for so many women on Mother's Day. Maybe your mom's not around. Maybe this is miscarriage number three. Maybe you're not married and there's no kids on the horizon. The list goes on and on and on and on. Maybe you are married and you've been trying to get pregnant for forever and it just doesn't seem to be working. And here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to walk away from God. I want you to wrestle with God. Life is meant to be a struggle. And on the other side of this struggle, on the other side of the conflict is the connection that you and I actually want with God. What the scripture is inviting us into is a wrestling match. One of the things that um, I was talking to my therapist about this past week, uh, you know, I'm very happy that in the black community, we're talking more and more about mental health, amen? amen. And one of the things I was talking to my therapist about this past week was, man, I, I really struggle with this desire for control, mainly because of how disappointing my life has been when I felt like I was out of control. The people closest to me know what it feels like for me to be anxious and worried and to obsess about small things that don't matter because really, I'm actually terrified of not being in control. Toward the end of the call, my therapist asked me, she said, Jordan, uh, was this a part of your life before or after your late, wife, your late wife passed away from cancer? I said, actually, it's after. I know what could happen in life, what God would allow in my life when I'm not in control. If I was in control, it would have never gone down like that, but I'm not. And so much of my life now is spent trying to be in control. So much of your life, I'm sure if you were to look under the hood a little bit, is spent wrestling for control with God. And what I want you to do is this. I want you to keep wrestling. I don't want you to give up or be disappointed because there's no resolution or you didn't get the answer that you were supposed to, uh, that, you, that would make you feel more satisfied. Stay in the ring. Repeat what Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. One of the things that uh, this past week, Dr. Sarita Lyons, she taught a session um, this past Saturday, uh, about eight days ago, and one of the things she said in her question and answer sessions was so profound that I was like, yo, this is your off-the-cuff stuff right here? She is, she's absolutely brilliant. She said there's three principles about God that many of us struggle with when you put them together. It's this, God is omniscient, that God knows all things that are going to happen. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere, all at the same time. And simultaneously, God is all-powerful. Now, this is particularly to people who have lived through difficult moments or lived through Trump traumatic events. It's saying this, on the worst day of your life, God knew what was going to happen. God was there. And God was powerful enough to stop it, and he did it. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to Google for answers? Is there a pamphlet that someone can give you that will resolve that tension in your life? You got to wrestle. God is inviting us to wrestle with him through all of our past pains, hurts, confusions, disappointments, uh, even the things in our life, the good things in our life that we don't want to give up. Now, how do we wrestle with God? We do it in two ways. We pray and we obey. One of the things that will be your largest temptation is to stop praying 
um, when things are not going the way you want it to go. Or stop praying when you don't want to turn over something to God. When life is going perfectly and you're like, actually, I'm good right here, I'm just going to stop praying. I don't want to mess this thing up. Instead of reserving your prayer life, God is inviting you to bring all of your confusions, frustrations, fears to him in prayer and to wrestle with him there. And the other way is to obey. And that means to hold on to God's ways in your life, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it feels like it's going against every single bone in your body, to hold on and say, God, I'm not going to let go, even though every ounce of me wants to go in the other direction. So wrestling with God is personal. It's invited. It's a struggle. And lastly, it is uh, we win by losing. So much of the Christian faith is this upside-down narrative that if you want to be the first, then you got to be the last. If you want to be the greatest of everyone, you need to be the servant of everyone. If you want to gain your life, you need to first lose it. In this text, uh, we see in verses 27 through 29, it says, The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and have what? You have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Now, I've seen a lot of street fights. And the dude that walking away limping didn't win. <laughs> We're told in this text that Jacob overcame, but he didn't overcome the traditional way that we would think a triumph is supposed to go. He won by losing. Now, we see this best in the gospel that Jesus won our lives. He won our salvation by losing his own life. The way forward for you in wrestling is to win by losing control of your own life. Man, in the, in the difficult and in the confusing and in the boring, in the mundane, everyday, today interactions I have in my relationship with God, the thing that's allowed me to win by losing it's definitely not the circumstances of my day-to-day -day interactions. It's something very different. It's something we celebrate here at Renaissance quite often, and it's called the gospel, that God, in all of his power and majesty, instead of crushing us, God crushed Jesus on our behalf. Instead of giving us what we deserved, God took what we deserved, and Jesus went to the, he went to the cross for me and for you. I've said it a lot, but the scripture in Hebrews 12 and 2, it's one that I held on to in the worst moments of my life, and I've, I've held on to it ever since. Every single time I feel myself wanting the control of my life, I hear the words of Hebrews 12 and 2, which say, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What does this tell us about the nature and the character of God? That God doesn't want to crush you. That God gave his all, his life, his, own, his only son for me and for you so that we could be connected to him. Not based on how great we have done, but rather... In his love, Romans 5 and 6, while we were still sinners, Jesus, uh, Jesus died for the ungodly. In these moments, not focusing on myself, not focusing on my circumstances, but focusing on what God has given us in Jesus on that cross, that's been the only thing I can hold on to. In the difficult moments of your life, you're not going to be able to hold on to Jesus' shirt. You're going to need to hold on to his flesh.